Can you dream of a world immune to cancer? Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure where content creators and podcasters from around the world join me to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute and Immunotherapy Research, which is training the body's immune system to fight against all forms of cancer. Over the past seven years, thanks to the power of indie podcasters and the indie podcasting community and listeners just like you listening to this right now, we have raised over $90,000. And as I record this now, the eighth annual live stream for The Cure is barreling down upon us really, really quickly in just about two weeks. So join us, please, from May 29th through June 1st for 48 hours of amazing content from people all over the world and help us fight for a world immune to cancer. And I'll return you to your regularly scheduled programming. Thank you so, so much. And together, we can make a difference. everyone, I'm Em and welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 184, Edward Scissorhands. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, a huge hi, welcome to Verbal Diorama, to brand new listeners, welcome back, regular returning listeners. We are well in the midst of Christmas here at Verbal Diorama. Last episode was obviously on another Christmas movie and another Tim Burton movie, Batman Returns. But thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing this podcast, especially at Christmas, because Christmas is a very busy time for everyone. But I'm so happy to have you here for the history and legacy of Edward Scissorhands. Before I go into Edward Scissorhands, I just want to say, as always, a huge thank you to everyone who's listened to, well, any episode of this podcast, I have to say, because the numbers recently have been just going through the roof. So thank you so much for that. But especially to the most recent episodes. So the last couple of episodes that I put out were on Super Troopers and also on Batman Returns, as I said. And for this episode, we are going to be returning to Tim Burton. And this was not on purpose, because I never intended to do two Tim Burton movies one after the other. I never intended to do Batman Returns in December, but I always intended to do Edward Scissorhands for Christmas. And it's just kind of transpired this way. It's just kind of more of a happy accident than anything. And it's also kind of happened in a bit of a weird way, because in real life, Tim Burton went from Edward Scissorhands to Batman Returns. And I'm going from Batman Returns to Edward Scissorhands. But it's also a remarkable sequence of events to go from something so personal, so rooted in Burton's own teenage angst, to something like Batman Returns, which is 
quite violent and overtly sexual. And and yet, they're both still very Tim Burton, gothic, macabre movies. And I think that's probably why I love them both so much. And Tim Burton is Edward Scissorhands in so many ways. This is a really incredibly personal movie for Tim Burton. To have that inner torment, to feel like you need to isolate yourself from a world that doesn't understand you, the struggle to communicate with others because you feel different. But Edward Scissorhands is also a story of love and hope. And it starts with an elderly Kim telling a story to her granddaughter about a very special man, a man who made it snow. Here's the trailer for Edward's hands. Just come home with me. Joyce, I just saw this strange guy driving with Peg. Did you get a good look at it? Hi! Scissors! Whoa! Circle handshake you got there, Ed. <laughs> Kim, this is Edward who's gonna live with us. Well, this must be quite a change for you, right, Ed? Those things are cool. Can I bring him to show and tell on Monday? He's a highly imaginative character. It seems clear that his awareness of what we call reality is radically underdeveloped. Eddie, you take my very breath away. Do you have a girlfriend? Oh. <laughs> is there some special lady in your life? Hey, full doctor, skewered kid. Just a scratch. The power of Satan is in him. I can feel it. Your weapon. All along, I felt in my gut there was something wrong with him. From Tim Burton comes the most incredible tale of a most unusual character. Edward Scissorhands. Hold me. gentle soul, a man created by an inventor who died before finishing him and left him with scissors where he should have had hands. One day when the local Avon representative calls at the historic mansion where he has been living alone, she takes him home to stay with her family. He has to adapt to a new life and an environment that he isn't used to. At first everyone welcomes him into the community but soon things begin to take a turn for the worse as gullible Edward is persuaded to break into a neighbour's home and the residents start to turn against him. We'll run through the cast of this movie. We have Johnny Depp as Edward Scissorhands, Winona Ryder as Kim Boggs, Anthony Michael Hall as Jim, Diane Weist as Peg Boggs, Kathy Baker as Joyce Monroe, Alan Arkin as Bill Boggs, Vincent Price as The Inventor, and Robert Oliveri as Kevin Boggs. Edward Scissorhands has a screenplay by Caroline Thompson, a story by Tim Burton and Caroline Thompson and was directed by Tim Burton. And as I mentioned, I did not plan to go from one Tim Burton movie to another, but I had always planned to do Edward Scissorhands. And it was Burton's phenomenal success with Batman in 1989 that led to him doing Edward Scissorhands. But let's start at the beginning. And the sketches that a young Tim Burton would draw while living in a cookie cutter neighbourhood, not unlike we see in this movie, as a young boy in Burbank, California. Burton was always different. He was a loner and he struggled to retain friends. The sketch was of a thin, solemn man with long fingers that looked like blades. And this was to indicate this was a man not yet finished. Sometimes the most eccentric of people have the most artistic minds though, and young Tim was special. He grew up and he went to work as an animator, storyboard artist, graphic designer, art director, and concept artist at Walt Disney Productions Animation Division. His concept art never made it into the finished films, but he contributed to The Fox and the Hound, Tron, and The Black Cauldron. During his time at Disney in 1982, he made his first short film, Vincent, a six-minute stop-motion film about a young boy who fantasises he is his hero, Vincent Price. 
Price himself would provide narration, and obviously we are going to be coming back to Vincent Price. His next short, this time live action, would be 1984's Frankenweenie, about a young boy who tries to revive his dead dog. Disney then fired Burton because Frankenweenie was deemed to be too dark and unsuitable for the family-friendly audience Disney liked to court. It was Frankenweenie that encouraged Paul Rubens to choose Burton to direct Pee-wee's Big Adventure, being sold on Burton's unique filming style. Pee-wee's Big Adventure was made for a tiny $7 million budget and went on to make $40.9 million in the US alone. From the success of Pee-wee's Big Adventure, Tim Burton basically had Hollywood in the palm of his hands to choose his sophomoric directorial attempt, but he had his heart set on a big screen Batman, and he started working on a script with Sam Hamm. Warner Brothers were fine to pay for this script, but less happy to greenlight a big-budget Batman movie. In the meantime, Burton was sent scripts for his approval on this sophomore effort and felt none of them were original or imaginative enough. Meanwhile, horror novelist Michael McDowell was trying to break into the movie business and spurred on by horror blockbusters like Ghostbusters, wanted to write a screenplay for a supernatural horror movie of his own. He enlisted his partner Lawrence Senelik to come up with ideas and together they came up with the concept of good ghosts rather than the malevolent spirits of Poltergeist and the Exorcist which led to the good ghosts being haunted by the awful living. And to get rid of the living, you need a bio-exorcist. That bio-exorcist was, of course, Beetlejuice. Both Beetlejuice and Batman have prior episodes of this podcast. And to be honest, I seem to really like Tim Burton because I've covered him a lot on this podcast. We're going to move from Tim Burton to talk about Caroline Thompson because she is pivotal to the story of this movie. She was a freelance book reviewer and writer whose first novel, Firstborn, about an aborted fetus that comes back to life, was optioned by Penelope Spheris to make into a movie, which Thompson started to write the screenplay for. Firstborn would never be made into a film, but she decided to switch course and become a screenwriter. Tim Burton had read Firstborn and found the psychological elements to be similar to an idea he'd had, and he hired Thompson to write a spec script for Edward Scissorhands, while he was working on Beetlejuice. Obviously, Burton was working with Warner Brothers on Beetlejuice and began to develop Edward Scissorhands with them. But Warner Brothers would then sell the film rights to Edward Scissorhands to 20th Century Fox. And Burton would choose to make Edward Scissorhands instead of a Batman sequel or a Beetlejuice sequel. He would also go to credit chairman of 20th Century Fox, Joe Roth, for his quick decision to make Edward Scissorhands without a lot of obstacles or interference. Burton would also say that Edward Scissorhands was his favourite movie to make and the experience of making it was so overwhelmingly positive. It was originally conceived as a musical. Thompson apparently wrote some, quote, really bad lyrics, unquote, but the idea was scrapped when Burton realised it would lose some of its intensity and solemnity. Each character was based on someone or something Thompson knew. Peg, the Avon representative who takes Edward home to take care of him, was based on her own mother. Bill, the eccentric father, portrayed by Alan Arkin, was Thompson's father. Thompson's friend Laurie was the template for Waspy Kim. Jim, her sporty jerk boyfriend, was based on one of Laurie's slacker boyfriends. She tried to get Burton to change the character of Edward's name to Nathaniel, but Burton refused. And let's be honest, Nathaniel Scissorhands doesn't quite have the same ring to it. Creating Frank and Weenie, both the 1984 animated short and the feature-length film that came 25 years later, might suggest that Burton is a fan of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. And it's no secret that both Burton and Thompson were influenced by universal horror films for Edward Scissorhands, such as The Hunchback of Notre Dame, The Phantom of the Opera, Creature from the Black Lagoon, as well as King Kong and Frankenstein. Burton and Thompson's partnership would continue to bear fruit in The Nightmare Before Christmas and Corpse Bride. Corpse Bride is also an episode of this podcast. The Nightmare Before Christmas is coming very soon. Burton had obviously already worked with Winona Ryder on Beetlejuice, but she wasn't the first actor attached to the project. That was Diane Weist, who signed on after being the first actor to read the script, and she just understood it completely. She fell in love with the project, and her interest and signing on meant other actors started to also get interested in Edward Scissorhands. Alan Arkin would read the script and not really understand it, until he visited the set and saw Burton's true visionary direction for the movie. The role of the inventor was only ever meant for Vincent Price. Price and Burton had become good friends during the making of Vincent, and this would be Price's last on-screen role. But Edward was the most important role to cast, 
and some huge names were considered and or turned the role down. Tom Hanks turned it down to do Bonfire of the Vanities, and I'm sure he didn't regret that one bit. Gary Oldman turned it down because he didn't understand Burton's vision. Jim Carrey was considered. Caroline Thompson even really liked John Cusack for the role. Even Robert Downey Jr. was interested, and reportedly Michael Jackson too, but Burton claims he never met with Jackson. The studio's top choice, though, was Tom Cruise. And Tom Cruise was just coming off his roles in the likes of Top Gun, Rain Man and Born on the 4th of July, and he was the big hot property in Hollywood. Fox insisted on Burton meeting with Cruise for the role of Edward, but Cruise had lots of questions about the role, and specifically the melancholy ending, which he wanted to be made happier. Reportedly, the other questions he asked included how Edward goes to the bathroom and how Edward lived without eating in his mansion. Basically, all the things that might be deemed as goofs in the movie, because Edward has scissors for hands and probably can't do all those things. Caroline Thompson would confirm in an interview with Dazed that the magic of the story was not knowing these things, and also that Cruz was unwilling to be in the movie without knowing these things. Maybe he wanted to go full method, we're never going to know. Winona Ryder would be approached directly by Burton after they worked together on Beetlejuice. She actually walked away from doing The Godfather Part 3 to do Edward Scissorhands. And then there was Johnny. Ryder had met Johnny Depp in June 1989 at the Great Balls of Fire premiere and began dating two months later, getting engaged in July 1990, which happened to be just as filming on Edward Scissorhands wrapped. Burton didn't always have Johnny Depp in mind for the role of Edward. At the time, Depp was a teen heartthrob from the TV show 21 Jump Street. He'd been the lead in John Waters' Crybaby, which impressed Burton, but Edward would be a character of few words, 169 to be precise, and it was important to have an actor who understood the vision and could act with his eyes, face and body. Johnny Depp portrays Edward with a genuine, clear purity and a sense of youthful curiosity. Depp approached everything, even the script, during his preparation for the role with the mindset of a child. He was curious, inquisitive, shy and morally pure. Edward's innocence and moral purity are corruptible, as the audience learns throughout the movie, and Depp would watch old Charlie Chaplin films to help him master the art of emoting without dialogue. To complete Edward's look, regular Burton costume designer Colleen Atwood would take Burton's scribbles and drawings and design what would become Edward's iconic outfit, the outfit that everyone's seen pretty much every Halloween since 1990. It would be tight and skinny, allude to a creator who was working with scraps of leather. Edward is all spare parts, he's unfinished. Atwood would hunt in the leather district in New York, finding various pieces, detailing and stitching, and the outfit would come together exactly like making your own Edward. The straps and buckles are meant to show Edward's body being his prison his vehicle for life, but also as an instrument of torture. When it came to filming, Tim Burton's hometown of Burbank was originally considered, but it had become too gentrified in his opinion. Production designer Bo Welsh wanted a generic, plain rap suburb, while location coordinator Bob Maharis scanned the country, initially visiting small towns in Texas, Burton felt Florida provided an ideal backdrop to replicate the flat, sunny mid-century suburbia. That, and he also liked the Florida clouds. The location moved to Florida, to the town of Lutz in Carpenter's Run and the small street of Tinsmith Circle. Carpenter's Run, cheaply bankrolled by a Pittsburgh real estate developer, matched that 1950s aesthetic Tim Burton wanted. With its serpentine roads and one-storey bungalows, the neighbourhood's minimal vegetation and spare 10-foot trees allowed the blue sky and clouds to envelop the frame. And I am going to be coming back to the weather as well in a little bit. But Tinsmith Circle is a real location. You can look it up on Google Maps. It's actually tagged with Edward Scissorhands' house. These are real houses that still exist. Edward Scissorhands was filmed in both the exterior and interior of these houses. And obviously, this is a movie that was made before the advent of CG. This movie is more or less completely practical. It's practically made on location and in a studio. And to film in people's houses, they needed to cut deals with the residents. At first, the homeowners of Tinsmith Circle were elated that their street was going to be a prominent character in a Tim Burton movie. The issue was the contracts that were set up caused a backlash. Location manager Michael Burmeister split the contracts into two categories. 
Residents that would need to vacate their homes, they would be offered higher priced packages so they could either stay in a local hotel or go on holiday. Other neighbours whose homes were in the background would not need to vacate and so they would be offered less money with additional pay given if the film crew ended up needing to cut down their bushes or needed to use a garage. And it sounds quite fair if you think about it, but the residents, most of whom would not have to vacate their homes, became angry at the deal. The production started to discuss the possibility of a different location, but the residents decided to counter with higher prices. Eventually, an amicable deal was reached and the art department set out on changing the area to fit Burton's ideas. Construction workers covered the aluminium garage doors with foam core diamond coverings and slimmed down the big front-facing windows, removing any embellishments that gave the houses anything more than a generic appearance. Local painters painted over the neutral tones of the residents in, in pastel pinks, blues and greens. The cars were also replaced in the neighbourhood. Welsh brought in 1970s cars like the Pacer, Gremlin and Duster, inspired by books like Billow in Suburbia. Art director Tom Duffield's team then painted the cars in complementary hues that matched the houses, which can be seen in the aerial shot at the start of the movie. And just in case you're wondering how difficult it is to film on a real street that contains real people, because there is no such thing as the internet, and because they didn't want to have to call residents every single day, Michael Burmeister spent the length of the shoot producing the production's own one-sheet newspaper called the Tinsmith Times. This newspaper informed residents where they could park their cars, when production would film each day during the two-month shoot, he and Bob Maharis spent mornings cycling around the neighbourhood, dropping off these newspapers and notifying Tom Duffield about any concerns from the neighbours or any issues like paint marks on windows or anything that needed touching up. Also, if you're very eagle-eyed in this movie, you can see in the street there is a conspicuous house in a green and orange fumigation tent for some of the movie. This was actually the art department's makeshift office. This is where Tom Duffield and Tim Burton designed the landscaping of the neighbourhood because they had to uproot trees for filming. They had to remove or trim bushes for filming. They didn't want additional textures to take away from the bland palettes because this would give Colleen Atwood's costumes a chance to shine. And also, this is a very female-fronted movie if you think about it. Although Edward is male, the vast majority of the supporting cast is female. And so Colleen Atwood's costume department actually chose very specific clothing for the female neighbours in the movie to give them a very strong definition against the bland colour scheme of the neighbourhood. I'm going to keep mentioning this a couple of times in this episode properly. This is before CGI. But they also had to try and make it very obvious that Edward's mansion was at the end of the street in the movie. But if you've ever been to Florida, you'll know it's very flat. And there aren't many mansions on top of hills in Florida. So how they achieved a mansion at the top of a hill at the end of the street in this town was the production actually visited a local orange grove. That orange grove had a sinkhole. And what they did was they actually put the camera at the bottom of a sinkhole and panned it up. This actually then created a hill, essentially. They got some diggers in. They quickly went about converting the site to a hill. Welsh's crew constructed the castle walls out of styrofoam and covered them with a thin layer of concrete using sculptors from Los Angeles. And this mansion would be surrounded by a stunning garden of well-manicured flowers and animal-themed foliage and surrounded by vines and also a crumbling fence as well. The idea that Edward would create topiaries in his isolation was an idea Caroline Thompson had early in her story, inspired by a recent viewing of The Shining. The idea of having perfect shrubbery sounded like the ideal competition between these neighbours. And the ideal skill for Edward would be to facilitate the competitiveness of the neighbours. The topiary in the movie was designed in conjunction with Disney World gardeners, who had previously built huge topiaries for their theme park. The team used rebar to construct frames based on Duffield's animals and people, which were then coated in chicken wire and painted green. To the exterior shape, they would sew a layer of various silk and plastic foliage. And it was a very taxing process. The team put in 14-hour workdays for eight weeks before transporting their creations from Orlando to Carpenter's Run on the back of a flatbed truck. Not all the plants were fake either. Local flower shops provided flowers for 50 different lawns and for Edward's mansion, yellow marigolds and purple lysanthus framed the topiaries. 
sometimes movie magic comes from the easiest and most obvious ways. And when Diane Weiss' character Peg sees Edward's hillside mansion in her car's side mirror, she's actually looking at a miniature prop based on the top of a rubbish bin. As I said, Carpenter's Run is a real suburb in Lutz in Florida, and it looks almost unrecognisable today compared to 30 years ago when it made its film debut. The community now has 30-year-old trees that throw extensive shadows. The area was formerly sparsely populated, but it's now bordered by new areas that have seen huge population growth. And Edward Scissorhands still draws local tourists, movie buffs, and most importantly, potential home buyers, as the few remaining original residents can attest. The Bogs, one-story Tinsmith Circle House, sold for slightly over $230,000 in September 2020. In July 2022, it was put up for sale for $1 million. Yes, you heard me right. One and a half years after it sold, it was put up for $1 million, but it actually didn't sell at that price. And it's a movie legacy that not many streets can claim. And it does harken back to the days when Hollywood did film mostly on location. And that location was also baking hot as well. This is Florida. And it led to Depp suffering heat exhaustion and fainting episodes. His wardrobe and prosthetic makeup would take one hour, 45 minutes to apply every day and often had to be reapplied during the hot filming. Which is ironic as this is seen as the first of Tim Burton's Christmas trilogy, obviously followed by Batman Returns and The Nightmare Before Christmas, which isn't a Tim Burton directed movie. It's a Henry Selick movie, but I'm coming back to that one very soon. But there's also a lot of other similarities between the three movies too. Themes of isolation, of loneliness and of self-discovery. And I just want to add as well, because throughout my life, I've known many Avon representatives. I'm pretty sure my mum worked for Avon at one point. I've got friends who still work for Avon. And the role of Avon in the movie is fairly understated, actually. Peg Boggs is an Avon representative. Avon, a beauty company established in 1886, built a business on empowering stay-at-home mums, an opportunity to be self-employed through direct selling, going door-to-door and advertising their products. And really, Avon was revolutionary at the time for recruiting women because opportunities for women to make their own money were few and far between. And you might be wondering, why Avon? How does that link to Edward? Well, it gives Peg a great opportunity to visit his gothic mansion for a start, but also as Avon connects Peg to the other neighbourhood women, it also works to connect Peg to Edward. Her going out into the world leads to him going out into the world. Her developing relationships through selling Avon albeit with mixed results, leads to Edward developing relationships, albeit with mixed results. And yes, I do have several Avon products in my home that I have bought from several Avon representatives, and I probably will still continue to support friends who work as Avon representatives. But it remains a constant source of joy for me that Avon is in this movie. And why Avon don't promote that they're in this movie more, I'm not sure. Maybe it's because Peg Boggs actually doesn't really sell very much. Who knows? Edward Scissorhands was the first collaboration between Tim Burton and Johnny Depp. They would obviously work together probably a million or so more times after this. It was also the first collaboration between Tim Burton and Stan Winston. Most famously, Stan Winston was responsible for putting the Scissorhands in Edward Scissorhands. Winston and his crew looked through every type of pruning shear and scissor ever produced in order to build the Scissorhands. Next time you actually look at the hands, you'll see that every finger is very distinct from the one before it. The scissor hands were produced in large quantities after the final design was chosen. Andy Schoenberg and Dave Grasso mass-produced countless sets of these scissor hands. There are a few of these scissor hands that have genuine blades, and these are made for insert shots only. The majority of the scissor hands were very secure, lightweight resin blades that had been vacuum-metallized to give them the look of metal but wouldn't be able to cut you like metal. So they were perfectly safe, but they still looked authentic. A pair of Edward's scissor hands went up for auction at Christie's in 2001. It was estimated to sell at between four to $5,000, but eventually they sold for $28,200. And just like all fairy tales, the story starts and ends with someone reciting the story to a child. And we'll never truly know if Kim did know Edward or whether she was making it up but we do know it never snowed before and now it does. Let's move on to the obligatory Keanu reference of this episode. So if you don't know what that is, that is a part of this podcast where I try to link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. 
for no reason other than, like Edward, Keanu is the purest and kindest soul on the planet. And this week's obligatory Keanu reference is quite easy, actually. Johnny Depp obviously was engaged to Winona Ryder just after filming this movie. They'd actually go on to split up a couple of years later. But there is the story of that time that Keanu technically married Winona Ryder on the set of Bram Stoker's Dracula because they used a real priest for Jonathan and Mina's wedding. I talked about that a little more on the episode that I did on Bram Stoker's Dracula. But obviously Keanu got there and quote-unquote married Winona and Johnny never did. So sucks to be you, Johnny. I can't talk about Edward Scissorhands, though, without talking about the magnificent Danny Elfman score for this movie. It is one of the most beautiful scores that Danny Elfman has ever done. This is the fourth time that Tim Burton would work with Danny Elfman. Honestly, this score is just simply majestic. Uh, It's haunting and beautiful and ethereal. It's so personal to this movie. There is nothing like this score that I can think of. But it is, again, a very Danny Elfman score. You can just smell Danny Elfman all over it. Danny Elfman would go on to state that Edward Scissorhands wasn't just Tim Burton's most personal work, but also his own most personal work. It's also his favourite score that he's ever done. And I could just listen to this score on repeat. I think it's absolutely wonderful, genuinely. The scene where she's dancing in the snow is just one of my favourite scenes, I think, in all of cinema. This is a movie that makes me cry a lot, as do most things. If you listen to this podcast, you'll know that I cry a lot at everything. But man, I cry so much at this score. It's so beautiful. And this was a movie that really came out of nowhere when it came to 20th Century Fox because they test screened the movie and the test screenings were so positive that Joe Roth, the then president, considered aggressively promoting Edward Scissorhands as an ET-sized blockbuster. That's how much confidence they had in Edward Scissorhands. But ultimately, he decided against that because he believed that Edward Scissorhands would speak for itself if he didn't overhype it and instead allowed the film to find its place in cinema. And it did find its place in cinema. So on 7th of December 1990, two theatres in the United States hosted a limited screening of Edward Scissorhands. It would receive a wide release a week later on the 14th of December and it would go on to gross $8.7 million in its first week. And this is kind of where things start to get a little bit unfortunate for Edward Scissorhands because despite its success, it came out during the rise and rise of Home Alone. Home Alone had already been out five weeks at the time of Edward Scissorhands' release and Home Alone was still killing it at the box office. So Edward Scissorhands would only ever debut at number three at the US box office against Kevin McAllister at number one. And Kevin McAllister stayed at number one for a long time at that time. Look Who's Talking 2 would debut the same week, but it would debut higher than Edward Scissorhands. When we are talking about financials, though, so Edward Scissorhands made $56.4 million in the US and an additional $29.7 million internationally for a total global gross of $86 million. And this is a movie which had a $20 million budget, so this was considered a financial success. Despite never peaking higher than three at the box office, Edward Scissorhands gained financially week on week, taking roughly a million dollars more each week for the next three weeks. So Edward Scissorhands really did work on word of mouth. And I was actually quite surprised that Edward Scissorhands only, I say only, has an 89% on Rotten Tomatoes because I would think it would be higher, actually. Because this feels like a movie that everyone can love. It has something for everyone to love. Whether you like fairy tales, romances, fantasies or reworkings of classic monster movies, But obviously, 11% of critics don't agree with me and, well, they're wrong. When it came to awards season, Stan Winston and V. Neal were nominated for an Academy Award for Best Makeup on their work on Edward Scissorhands. But unfortunately, they lost to Dick Tracy. Winston and Neal, costume designer Colleen Atwood and production designer Bo Welsh were all nominated for BAFTAs. Uh, Welsh ultimately won the award for Best Production Design. Stan Winston would also receive a nomination for his work on the visual effects. And Johnny Depp would receive a Golden Globe nomination for Best Actor in a Musical or Comedy, but he would lose to Gérard Depardieu for Green Card. And you won't be entirely surprised that there are no movie sequels to Edward Scissorhands. I believe there was a car ad in the US where Winona Ryder reprised her role with Timothy Chalamet as Edgar Scissorhands, the son of Edward. 
I'm not counting that as a sequel, but I do want to talk about something that you may not know. So in November 2005, the Sadler's Wells Theatre in London hosted the world premiere of a theatrical ballet adaptation by British choreographer Matthew Bourne with music by Terry Davis. The ballet show undertook a tour of the UK, Asia and the US following an 11-week run. The dance version of Edward Scissorhands is set in the 1950s and was created with assistance from screenwriter Caroline Thompson and composer Danny Elfman. Despite having a similar scenario to the movie, it's delivered solely through music and dance. It actually has no spoken word at all. It would go on to receive a nomination for the 2007 Drama Desk Award for Outstanding Choreography, and it would win the 2007 Drama Desk Award for Unique Theatrical Experience. There was also a stage version of Edward Scissorhands. The world premiere of Richard Crawford's version of the movie took place on the 25th of June 2010 at the Brooklyn Studio Lab, and this would run through to the 3rd of July 2010. Let's move on to some social media thoughts. So I always like to ask on social media what people think of the movies that I'm featuring. And I ask on Patreon and I also ask on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and now also Hive and Mastodon as well. Let's start with the patrons. And we're going to start with Pete. And Pete says, When most audiences think of Tim Burton now, they expect 75% of the movie to be CGI renderings of impossible whimsy. I choose to ignore those films and cling to the memories I have of Burton's good old days. Beetlejuice, Batman Returns and the delightful Edward Scissorhands. I love the world building that's just slightly off from our own, where a zombie cyborg leather daddy can be created alongside cookies and candy, who can fall in love and bleed but can't die from starvation. Alan Arkin is a real dad's dad and Diane Weist is the mommiest mom to ever mom. It's tragedy from start to finish. And it's a prime example of a modern dark fairy tale. I love it. And to be honest, Pete, I completely agree. I don't like any of Tim Burton's recent stuff. I actively avoid it. And I think that's because I have so much, to coin a word you used, I have so much whimsy for good old Tim Burton. Although I have been enjoying Wednesday, I will admit that. But there's something about late 80s, early 90s Tim Burton that just really appeals to me. And obviously it appeals to many people because. Edward Scissorhands is a great movie and a lot of people love it. Obviously, if a patron does comment and they have a podcast, then I do mention their podcast as well. And Pete's podcast is called Middle Class Film Class. It is a weekly movie news and reviews podcast. It's hosted by Pete and Joseph and Tyler as well. I will put some information in the show notes, but you can find Middle Class Film Class wherever you found this podcast. And perennial commenter Andy is back. And Andy says... In what is probably Tim Burton's most personal film, Edward Scissorhands ranks among not only my favourite Burton films, but one of my favourite movies of all time. A beautiful Christmas card of a movie that takes the Frankenstein tale and drops it right into the sanitised suburbs of days long gone. This was the role that really opened up my eyes to the potential that Johnny Depp held. But what I really want to discuss is the score by Danny Elfman, a character in its own right. It evokes emotions, one of the first movies that I've cried at as an adult, and has worked itself into our collective popular culture ether and made a welcome appearance in the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special. A truly beautiful movie and one that we will be reviewing this holiday season, Shameless Santa Plug, on our YouTube channel. And Andy, I am going to tell everyone about your YouTube channel <laughs> as well as your podcast because, yes, you can listen to Geek Salad on your podcast apps, but you can also watch Geek Salad on YouTube as well. And they do have a series on YouTube called Retro Reviews, and so you should absolutely check out their Edward Scissorhands review whenever it goes up. I'm not sure exactly when, but I will post on social media when it does. But obviously, you should also listen to Geek Salad. I mention it pretty much every week. So if you haven't listened to Geek Salad yet and you listen to this podcast, then you know what you need to do. You need to give yourself a Christmas gift and pop Geek Salad in your podcast app of choice. I will obviously put some information in the show notes for that. We have another patron comment from Derek who says, such a strange adventure that both plays sentimentally about American culture while exposing the conformity and ugliness within, all the while having the mythic feel of Greek tragedy. Burton at his best, and it's a true American classic. And if you want to know more about American pop culture or mythology and Greek tragedy, etc., etc., then basically The Midnight Myth is exactly the sort of podcast that you need to listen to. So Derek hosts this podcast with his wife, Laurel, and 
honestly, I learned so much from listening to The Midnight Myth. They are the best podcast about history and philosophy and mythology and how those topics kind of blend into our modern pop culture. I'll put some links in the show notes for The Midnight Myth. You should absolutely take a listen. The final Patreon comment comes from Nicholas, who says, The mixture of Burton's usual gothic look with the colourful suburban environment works really well. And of course, a beautiful score by Danny Elfman. Right, we're going to move over to Twitter. And we're going to start with at Dissect That Film, who said, A beautiful film that brings amazing performances, both bright and dreary settings, and the birth of the decades-long relationship between Johnny Depp and Tim Burton. Also the start of the fantastic writings of Caroline Thompson. At the 80s Movie Pod said, Enjoyed it when I saw it, have never felt the need to revisit. And at M. Howe 1980 said, At the time, a film that combined Burton's thoughts on art and suburbia, while also showing his feelings on being an outsider who couldn't really conform, let alone knowing he can never belong. Hold me, I can't. There are actually no comments on Instagram, on Facebook, on Mastodon or on Hive because Hive wasn't working at the time. So I've not been able to get any. So that's it for comments on Edward Scissorhands. I would say it's not about quantity. It's always about quality when it comes to comments on this podcast. So thank you to the patrons and thank you to those three people on Twitter for your comments on Edward Scissorhands. The themes in Edward Scissorhands include the loss of innocence, understanding and accepting difference, conformity and science's replacement of God, amongst many other things. We have an outsider, an artist named Edward, who lives in a gothic mansion. He's all in black leather. He's pale. He has black hair. And you contrast him with the suburbanites who commute to work and return home at the same time. They live in pastel-coloured homes. They wear pastel-coloured clothing. And you can really see this is a movie that's set up to show the differences in people. When Peg meets Edward, she's instantly charmed by him and she wants to take care of him. She has a motherly instinct over him. And it's actually really lovely to see a character see someone like Edward and not be immediately disgusted or afraid of him. She literally just wants to help him. And Peg Boggs is one of the loveliest, sweetest characters in this movie, but that doesn't mean that she's not misguided because her efforts to have Edward wear her husband's clothes and the fact she chooses makeup on his face, these things are well-intentioned, but while she's attempting to assist him, she's also impeding his individuality. There are many well-meaning people in this movie and they offer Edward connections to medical professionals who might be able to help him. But you've got to ask the question, well, does Edward actually require help? Does he want the help? If you look at movies like Alien, Ex Machina, Terminator and Ghost in the Shell, you have examples of AI, robots who strive to fit into their environments. But does Edward really want to fit in? Does he want to be liked? Does he want to belong? Or is it just something that Peg wants for him? This is a movie about conformity, but it's also a movie about accepting diversity and appreciating someone's differences, Edward will never fit into this community. This is a movie that wouldn't have ended tragically if the town had realised who he was from the start and welcomed him for who he was. Instead, we witness a community become dishonest and nasty and how they basically transform a good person into a murderer. It shows the very breeding of mob mentality and how that and we corrupt the innocent. With pastel backdrops and Danny Elfman's wonderful melancholy score, Burton managed to produce one hell of a tribute to teen angst, thanks to the creative control that they had on this movie. And it is becoming less and less common for movies like this, with people who are a little bit different behind the scenes, expressing their views without being coerced or steered in a certain direction by a Hollywood studio. And it makes me feel that a movie like Edward Scissorhands would be virtually impossible to make today. The characters, the plot and the visuals, they all work together to create a film that is a love letter not only to old Universal monster movies, but also to the outsiders in the world. Because in a town full of societal conformists who can't seem to determine whether or not they want to give Edward a shot, he still manages to make his mark on this world by being the only thing that he can be. His sweet, innocent and uncomplicated self. He finds a family, love and friendship, despite his differences to the norm. 
And everyone can feel like a loner or an outsider at some point in our lives. We're always going to feel the experience of being an Edward in a pastel-coloured township. We can choose to change ourselves or we can just continue to be ourselves. Edward wears his leather and scars with pride, despite Peg's insistence to cover both up to fit in. Edward Scissorhands didn't start the fascination with goth culture, but it certainly did fuel it. But ultimately, this is a movie where it says it's okay to be like Edward. It's okay to be true to yourself. Edward Scissorhands is one of those rare films where every single aspect comes together perfectly to create movie magic and for the monster to actually have a beating heart. A beating heart made of cookies. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Edward Scissorhands. And if you do want to get involved and you want to help this podcast grow, you can. The easiest way to get involved and support this podcast is simply to do what you're doing right now, to listen to this podcast. So thank you so much for doing that. But if you want to do a little bit more to help this podcast, you could tell your friends and family about this podcast, especially if they are a big fan of Edward Scissorhands. If you really, really liked this episode, you could retweet or like posts on social media about it and spread the word that way. I am at Verbal Diorama on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Letterboxd, Hive and Mastodon. Or if you really, 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 really like this episode, you could leave a five-star rating and review wherever you found it. So whether that's Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, wherever in the world you found this episode, if you can find a way to review it, then please do. That would be amazing. And if you did like this episode specifically on Edward Scissorhands, you might also like the following movies slash previous episodes that I have done on this podcast. And surprise, surprise not, they are all Tim Burton movies. So episode 94 on Beetlejuice. Beetlejuice is one of my favourite Tim Burton movies ever. I adore that movie. If you have not seen Beetlejuice, please watch Beetlejuice and then listen to my episode on Beetlejuice, which was one of the most fun episodes that I've ever done on this podcast, actually. Sometimes I really like to be able to just let loose and just have fun. And Beetlejuice was one of those episodes where I could do that. And obviously I have fun on every episode. I'm not saying that I don't. But Beetlejuice was very, very special with how fun I felt that episode was. Episode 135, Corpse Bride. Now, Corpse Bride is obviously a stop-motion animated movie. It was animated by Laika. It is a very Tim Burton movie. And I say that with all the respect to Tim Burton because Corpse Bride is incredibly special as far as stop-motion movies go. It's based on so much folklore and I go into some of the folk tales that it's based on. Really fascinating history in that particular episode that I really enjoyed going into. And obviously, if you've not seen Corpse Bride, you absolutely should see that movie. And then The Double, episode 153, Batman, and the previous episode, 183, Batman Returns, because Tim Burton Batman movies are, controversially, I'm going to say it, the best Batman movies. I like Christopher Nolan Batman movies. I really do. But there's something great about Tim Burton Batman movies. I don't know what it is, but I love Batman and I love Batman Returns. And those episodes were so much fun to do. So please watch all those movies if you haven't. And please listen to those episodes if you haven't. Obviously, as always, give me feedback. Let me know. If you think I missed any recommendations. So the next episode, no more Tim Burton. <laughs> I am not going back to Tim Burton for the next episode. Going to be breaking from Tim Burton to go for a true Christmas classic. And I'm going to say, no hyperbole, the greatest adaptation of Charles Dickens that ever exists, as well as the best on-screen Ebenezer Scrooge that exists. I'm very well known for what I love on this podcast. And a lot of people who listen to this podcast regularly will know how much I love puppet work, but mainly how much I love the Muppets because I love the Muppets the most. So of course, I need to do an episode on the Muppet Christmas Carol. I've wanted to cover this movie for years at Christmas. I've never been able to really do it before because Christmas on Verbal Diorama has kind of been a bit different for the last few years. But this year, actually doing proper Christmas movies, and I could not do a Christmas season without The Muppet Christmas Carol. So please come and join me next week as we go full on Christmas with one of the best Christmas movies that exists ever, The Muppet Christmas Carol. Now I mentioned before how you could support this podcast for free because this podcast is free and it always will be free. But if you do want to support this podcast financially, you can sign up to support the show at verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. I know times are really hard right now and money is really scarce for everyone. 
So I'm so grateful to the following people who still support this show. Thank you to the patrons of Verbal Diorama, to Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kristin, Kat, Andy, Mike, Griff, Luke, Emily, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Sam, Will, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Sonny, Drew, Nicholas, Zoe, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali and Tyler. Just think of me dancing in the Patreon snow right now, looking all like ethereal, like Winona Ryder. I do have a merch store too. It's verbaldiorama.com slash merch. You can also get in touch with me. And if you want to, please do. You can get in touch with me on social media, but you can also email me verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can say hi, you can give me feedback, or you can go to verbaldiorama.com and you can fill out the contact form. And I also can be found at filmstories.co.uk. You can check out the magazine that I write for and the articles that I write online as well. And finally... Are you okay? Yes, are you okay? Where is everybody? Out looking for you.